Chapter 7 of The Call of the Wildflower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Call of the Wildflower by Henry Salt. Chapter 7 Prisoners of the Parterre. Prim little scholars are the flowers of her garden, trained to stand in rows, and asking if they please. I might love them well, but for loving more the wild ones. Oh, my wild ones, they tell me more than these. Meredith The domestication of plants, as of animals, is a concern of such practical importance that in most minds it quite transcends whatever interest may be felt in the beauty of wildflowers. But the many delights of the garden ought not to blind us to the fact that there is in the wild a peculiar quality which the domesticated can never reproduce, and that the plant which is free, even if it be the humblest and most common, has a charm for the nature lover which the more gorgeous captives of the garden must inevitably lack. If much is gained by domestication, much is also lost. This, doubtless, is felt less strongly in the taming of plants than of animals, but in either case it holds true. To some of us, it must be owned, zoological gardens are a nightmare of confusion, and the now almost equally popular rock garden, a place which leaves an impression of dullness and futility. For while we fully recognise the interest, such as it is, of inducing alpines to grow under altered conditions of climate, there is an irrelevance in the assembling of heterogeneous flowers in one enclosure, which perplexes and wearies the mind. For just as a cosmopolitan city is no city at all, and a babel is no language, so a multifarious rock garden, where a host of alien plants are grouped in unnatural juxtaposition, is a collection not of flowers, but of specimens. For scientific purposes, the determination of species, and viewing the plants in all stages of their growth, it may be most valuable. To the mere flower-lover, as he gazes on such a concourse, the thought that arises is, what's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba? It is a museum, a herbarium, if you like, but hardly, in any true sense, a garden. I once had the experience of living next door to a friend who was smitten with the mania for rock-gardening, and from my study window I overlooked the process from start to finish. First the arrival of many tons of limestone blocks and chips, then the construction of artificial crags and gullies, moraines and escarpments, until a line of miniature alps rose to view, and lastly the planting of various mountain flowers in the situations suited to their needs. Then followed many earnest colloquies between the creator of this fair scene and a neighbour enthusiast, as they walked about the garden together and inspected it plant by plant, much as a farmer goes his rounds to examine his oats or turnips. They surveyed the world, botanically speaking, from China to Peru. Yet somehow I felt that, just as I would rather see a sparrow at large than an eagle in captivity, so to be shown round that well-fashioned rockery was less entertaining than to show oneself round the most barren of the adjacent moors. 
Herbs that grow in the fields, wrote a 15th century herbalist, be better than those that grow in gardens. This, however, is by no means the common opinion. On the contrary, there is in most minds a disregard or veritable contempt for wildflowers as being, with a few exceptions, weeds, and quite unworthy of comparison with the inmates of a garden. In her Haunts of the Wildflowers, Anne Pratt has recorded how she was invited by a cottager to throw away a bunch of ordinary gaze that she was carrying and to gather some garden flowers in their stead. I once took a long walk over the moors in Derbyshire in order to visit certain rare flowers of the limestone dales, among them the speedwell-leaved Whitlow grass, Draba muralis, a specimen of which I brought home. This little crucifer is very insignificant in appearance, and the fact that anyone should plod many miles to gather it so upset the gravity of an extremely demure and respectful servant girl when she saw it on my mantelpiece, that to her own visible shame and confusion she broke into a loud giggle, somewhat as Bernard Shaw's chocolate cream soldier failed to conceal his amusement when the portrait of the hero of the cavalry charge was shown to him by its possessor. Even in the case of those wildings whose beauty or scent has made them generally popular, it is thought the highest compliment to domesticate them, to bring them, poor waifs and strays that they are, from their forlorn savage state into the fold of civilization, just as a deserving pauper might be received into an almshouse, or an orphan child into one of Dr. Bernardo's homes. And strange to say, this reverential belief in the garden, as enhancing the merits of the wild, has found its way into many of the wildflower books. For instance, in John's well-known work, Flowers of the Field, of the field, be it noted, we are informed that the lily of the valley is a universally admired garden plant and that the sweetbriar is deservedly cultivated. The more refined wildflowers, it will be seen, can thus rise, as it were, from the ranks, at the cost of their freedom, which happens to be the most interesting thing about them, to be enrolled in the army of the civilised. And the result has been that some of the more distinguished plants, such as the Daphne Mesererum, are fast losing their place among British wildflowers and becoming nothing better than prisoners and captives of the parterre. This disdain that is felt for whatever is wild, natural and unowned is largely responsible for the unscrupulous digging up of any attractive plants that may be discovered, a subject of which I propose to speak in the next chapter. The absurdity of the typical gardener's attitude toward wildflowers is well illustrated by some remarks in Delamere's The Flower Garden, 1856, with reference to that exceedingly beautiful plant, the Tutsan. Tutsan is a hardy, shrubby St. John's word, largely employed by gardeners of the last century, but it has now, for the most part, retired from business, in consequence of the arrival of more attractive and equally serviceable newcomers. One or two Tutsan bushes may be permitted to help to form a screen of shrubs, in consideration of the days of old Lang Syne. Fortunately, the Tutsan is not retiring from business in nature's garden. It seems to me that, 
instead of carrying more and more wildflowers into captivity, it would be much wiser to set at liberty the many British plants that are now under detention. I would instruct my gardener, if I had one, to lift very carefully the daphnes, the lilies of the valley, the tutsans, the cornflowers, the woodruffs, and the rest of the native clan, and to plant them out, each according to its taste, by bank or hedgerow, in field, common, or wood. End of chapter 7